and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Snowden Wright's latest book, American Pop, blends fact and fiction to bring us the fascinating story of the Forster family's soda pop dynasty. The novel was chosen as an NPR Book of the Year and a Wall Street Journal's Book of the Month pick, among other honors. He visited Authors Love Bookstores to talk with fellow writer Joe Moldover and pay homage to his favorite independent bookstore, Square Books in Mississippi. They talked about the hypothetical premise behind American Pop's plot, the books and films that inspired the story's non-linear structure, and what we can expect from Snowden's next novel. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Joe, Lynn Roberts from Square Books, and their very special Mississippi guest, Snowden Wright. Hello, book lovers, and welcome to the 125th episode of Authors Love Bookstores from a Mighty Blaze. I'm your host, Joe Moldover, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Every week, I, along with my partner and fellow writer, Kimberly Hensel Lawrence, crisscross North America and beyond visiting independent bookstores and the authors who love them. And this week, for the first time, we are in the great state of Mississippi at Square Books with General Manager Lynn Roberts and author Snowden Wright. Lynn and Snowden, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Uh, Snowden Wright is the author of the novel American Pop, uh, a Wall Street Journal book of the month, a selection for Barnes and Noble's Discover Great New Writers program, Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance Okra Pick, and NPR favorite book of the year. Snowden is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Columbia University. He's written for The Atlantic, Salon, Esquire, The Millions, and The New York Daily News, among others. Uh, uh, Snowden was the visiting writer and prose faculty at the 2021 Longleaf Writers Conference, and his debut novel, Play Pretty Blues, won the 2012 Summer Literary Seminar's Grey Wolf Prize. Snowden is at work on his third novel, which we will be discussing. Uh, Snowden, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lynn Roberts is the general manager at Square Books. We have met with uh, now 125 uh, plus independent booksellers from all across the country, as well as Canada and the United Kingdom. And very few of them have the gravitas and history of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, literally in the shadow of William Faulkner. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you for the invitation. Snowden, uh, we're with Square because uh, they are your sort of beloved independent bookseller. I wonder if you would say a little bit about what is so special about Square Books. I grew up in a small town in Mississippi, Meridian, Mississippi. And for much of my childhood, we didn't have a bookstore. And so therefore we had to find them. And in Mississippi, we're fortunate to have a uh, an I-85 book access 
of which I live kind of in the middle now. Uh, on the southern end is Lemuria Books in Jackson, Mississippi, and the northern end is Square Books in Oxford. And growing up, going to see a football game with my family, Square Books was an oasis for me, a place to, to find literature that I normally wouldn't have been able to find in my hometown because we didn't have, for a large amount of time, a bookstore. And even uh, beyond that, uh, they've always had a, an excellent curation of books. Um, and you can always get expert recommendations from their booksellers. And I think one of the best features of Square Books is their stellar lineup of guest authors and events. I would uh, hold their calendar of events up to any bookstore in the country. And uh, for me personally, recently, uh, when my first book came out, it was with a small press and Square Books was kind enough to host me for a reading there. And that was in 2013. Then in 2014, I was beginning work on my second novel and I was still living in New York City. And I was also working a day job. And so I was finding it very difficult to complete the, the novel with that sort of workload. And around that time, sadly, my grandfather passed away. And with the small inheritance he left me, this, this wasn't a fortune, but it was enough to live on for a year or two. I decided to honor his memory and his generosity by using that money to move back to my home state, which had been his home state, and work on my second novel full time. And so I moved to Oxford primarily because it's such a literary town. It is a, a haven for, for, for writers and artists of all kinds. And the, uh, the beating heart of that literary community is Square Books. And so I was living in a, a townhouse down the road from Square Books, and that was always a home away from home, a way to to go and uh, be around the literary scene and meet other writers and be inspired by that. And so I really have square books to thank in that respect for the writing of American Pop. Mm, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. Uh, Lynn, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about square books in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, Snowden mentioned that it's uh, you know a very literary town. Uh, Square Books itself and uh, the Howarth family was profiled in the New Yorker last year. We're going to post a link in the chat so people can check that out. So it is um, it is an unusually well-documented bookstore. But would you just say a few words about the store in the town for us? Oh, sure. So um, Richard and Lisa Howarth, who are the owners of the store, they started the store in 1979 um, on the square, the Square Books. But it was on the second floor. I mean, they didn't even have any garage. And so they um, started off in a little small bookstore. And six years later, they moved into what is now sort of this um, uh, iconic uh, orange building. It's, it's actually the pillars to your eye. It's orange. And... Um, that was uh, 1986, which was actually the time that I moved to um, Oxford to go to some graduate school. And for me, at that time, I was not a bookseller. It was, you know, it, it was definitely a draw for Oxford, and I sort of naturally gravitated to. 
um, the bookstore and that's where I hung out. Well, besides the bars, but other than that, you know, I spent a lot of time at the bookstore and, um, then, uh, you know, as the years went on, Square Books was, grew and we opened Off Square Books, and which is our event space. And also it's our lifestyle and leisure store. We have gifts there, cooking and travel and used and bargain books. And then Square Books Junior, a store just for kids. And then finally, on, on the 40th anniversary, we opened Rare Square Books, which is back on that second floor where Richard Lisa first started the store in 1979. Mm. That's fabulous. That's fantastic. Um, we again, we're posting links to uh, information about the store uh, for the audience to look at. Um, encourage everybody to head to the store's website. Uh, support independent book selling. Uh, pick up a copy of American Pop if you haven't already. Um, Snowden, for audience members who may not be familiar, um, American Pop is a, uh, it is a multi-generational family narrative, um, set against the backdrop of the soft drink industry in some ways. Uh, um, it is, um, I think, I guess, somewhat non-linear in structure. Um, but I, I wonder if you would just sort of say, first of all, just a little bit about it for people who might not be familiar and just give us your elevator pitch for the book. And then maybe just a few words about writing it. Sure. The, the book began with a hypothetical premise. I asked myself, what would a novel about the Kennedys be like if they had made their fortune by inventing Coca-Cola? And so <laughs> it, That is how it reads. That's exactly uh, how it reads. That works. <laughs> and so it follows this fictional family, the Foresters, through over 100 years of American cultural history via this soft drink company, the Panola Cola Company, that they founded and own. And because they are so wealthy and so socially and politically prominent in America, it allowed me to have them hobnob with people that a regular family would not have. And it also allowed me to explore what I think are uh, very American themes. The uh, I mentioned earlier that I was writing the book in Oxford, but a lot of the time I'd spend my weekends down on my family farm, which I live at now. I've, I've since built a house there, but back at the time, I was living in this old shotgun cottage. This was not a fancy place. And the story behind it goes that uh, back in the, the 80s, maybe in the 70s, uh, my father bought this shotgun cottage for maybe a couple thousand dollars and had it shipped to this hilltop on the farm. And he was so young and it was, uh, it was his first major purchase as a young man. And so he was therefore so proud of it that he immediately got in his car and drove down the road to Yazoo City to his mother's house. And he said, Mama, get in the car. I got something to show you. And the thing to know about my grandmother was that she was this old school Mississippi blue blood. She had since lost that wealth as American families are wont to do, but she still had that bearing about her. And so my dad pulls up in front of this old shotgun cottage, runs around, opens the car door for his mother. And he says, look at this, mom, this is, this is mine. I bought this, I own this. And his mother takes a long drag of her cigarette and goes, Charles, and that family burn house is nicer than this. <laughs> and, that story, along with 
the memory of stories like it, living in Mississippi while I was working on American Pop, really inspired me because what is that? What is the essence of, of that story? Is the fluidity of wealth and class and socioeconomic status in America. And to quote Nathaniel Hawthorne, families are always rising and falling in America. And it really was inspiring to be back in my home state and to be back my, around my family and to have the, uh, the memories that came up, which I, I, I sought it throughout the book, uh, little episodes of family lore. There was even one that um, at one point, uh, when my parents were young, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, and my mom had spent the day cooking and cleaning and doing those uh, stereotypical housewife things. And my dad was on the couch, and he just nonchalantly asked her to uh, to make sure that his blue shirt was ironed before work the next day. And so my dad, had, I mean, my mom had headed up to here with that. And so she went upstairs to his closet, gathered all his clothes, and tossed them onto the front lawn. Around that time, my grandmother, my mother's mother, pulls into the to the driveway for a visit, and she sees all these shirts on on the on the lawn, and she's like, "What is going on?" So she starts picking up a few, putting them in her arms, and she walks in, and my father immediately says, "Helen, did you see what your crazy daughter did?" At which point, my mother told her side of the story, and my grandmother intuited who was in the right, and so she immediately went back outside and started tossing the shirts back into the front lawn where they belonged. And so stories like that and other episodes of Family Lore really made their way into the book so that even though it's highly fictionalized, it still has some uh, seeds of my personal family lore that uh, makes the book personal to me. Fantastic, and I think that really comes through in the writing. Many of the people who watch the show are themselves writers or are sort of aspire, you know, aspiring writers. And, um, you know, this, I think, uh, American Pop, I think, would be a daunting project, I think, for anyone because of both sort of the scale of it, you know, the multi-generational scale, sort of this sort of like epic scope to it, and also the structure. And I wonder if you would just sort of say something about your process in terms of, you know, are, are, did you lay this book out beat by beat in outline form and then follow it through? Did you kind of have all of this material in terms of family stories and uh, ideas about sort of a Kennedy soda empire and then sort of struggle to knit them together in a coherent way? Could just give us a sense of sort of what that process was and how long it took you. There were a few inspirations for the book. Of course, there's Edward P. Jones's The Known World, which I love and is told in a nonlinear structure as well. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, I always saw that is a direct inspiration. So instead of that being, instead of being set in South America, this is my hundred years set in the American South. And even with film, there are a few inspirations. Uh, Citizen Kane, Pulp Fiction, those are both told in nonlinear uh, formats. So with that structure, I had to know the entire story front to back, and I had to know these characters' lives and the arcs of their, of their lives front to back as well. And uh, when I was starting the book, I knew I wanted to write a book about a large family, multi-generational, and about a softering company. So then I remembered my multiplication tables. In second grade, uh, to learn how 
the numbers 0 through 12 multiply with each other, I came up with a mnemonic device via narrative. So every number between 0 and 12 had a place within a larger family and their own personality. So 10 was the father, 5 was the mother, 9 was the older brother, 8 was the, or 7 was the hothead younger brother, 6 was the sister. All of these is very soap operatic. And when they were multiplied in my weird little brain, my little sec second, grade, second grade brain, their product looked like a, an anecdote. And so even now, when I factor a tip at a restaurant, these little stories play out in my head. And so I realized I had, A, I had my characters, and B, I had most of the plot right there. So all I had to do was transplant the numbers into, into the book. So it was almost like writing by math. And that really allowed me to dice up the narrative by knowing where everything, when everything would happen. And therefore I was able to create juxtapositions that I considered more artful. And writers are always manipulating time there. They could be uh, dilating a small moment uh, into 50 pages or uh, taking 50 years and covering that in one paragraph. So time is always being manipulated in fiction. And I was just taking that to a bit more of an extreme with this book in order, I felt, to make it more artful. Mm, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Um, Lynn, let me turn to you. Um, you know, the, the Forrester family is this sort of great epic Southern family uh, you know, and they may be kind of inspired in some ways by the Kennedys, but they are unmistakably Southern. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Square Books, of course, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the stories about Square Books is I think you're very close to, Will, to William Faulkner House, to Rowan Oak, and, you know, sort of in sort of the seat of sort of like great Southern literature. I wonder if you would sort of say something about this idea of Southern literature, sort of what is it that makes a book sort of recognizably Southern? What are the characteristics? What, what sort of, what, 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 what does that, what does that uh, label mean to you? <laughs> Thanks for the easy question. Yeah, all yours, all yours. The, the, <laughs> mic, the mic is yours. <laughs> no, you know, I think what Snowden just said about, uh, you know, I, I just was laughing because I'm delighted to know that that story about throwing the shirts out the window is true because I just, that was one of my favorite scenes in the book. So um, I'm glad that it came from a, a real life family experience. But, um, you know, that's that sort of exemplifies um, Southern, you know, a, a big influence on Southern writing is um, these, you know, family histories and family storytelling that then, you know, goes on to enter into Southern literature. But you know, it's so it's so hard to say what what is Southern literature and and um, you know other than that that the people are the writers are from the South. I I don't really know what the answer to that is. I think there's often sort of a darkness to it. I think you know I think there's sort of this very particular quality to it with sort of like a shadow to it or sort of a darkness to it. Um, you know that comes through in some of those anecdotes. Um, and, you know, it's so difficult to articulate. We had um, the Arkansas writer Eli Craner on the show. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, who wrote uh, Don't Know Tough. And um, and I, 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 I don't think American pop is sort of Southern Gothic in the way that, that 
don't know tough is but you know i said to eli you know your your book is is characterized as southern gothic it's in all the reviews what does that mean and he said yeah you know the reviews came out and my dad called me up and he said hey these guys are saying your book southern gothic what's that and he said you know you know <laughs> beats me but you know like people sort of seem to know it when they see it i mean i think it's sort of a particular flavor it's a particular sensibility that i think is kind of captured snowden in some of those anecdotes that you tell, the sort of drollness, but also the sort of darkness, I think. I think right. Well, happy happy stories are not very interesting, are they? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so, so that darkness and that sort of, you know, wry sensibility that, you know, it's all, all um, you know, almost a reveling in the tragedy and, and finding the humor in, in the dark places. Yes, this, right. That's the Southern characteristic. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Snowden, you were going to say and, something. Yeah. And part of growing up here, uh, if you have Southern Gothic, isn't uh, some separate genre. It's just life for us. It's something <laughs> right. that we call every day. So you say like, oh, this is Southern Gothic. You know, like, Oh no! This is just air. This is the this is the world right. we live in. <laughs> That's a great point. That's a very northern perspective. I mean, I'm sure that those reviews were in like the New York Times, and I'm you know, I'm sitting here in Massachusetts, sort of saying you know, oh yeah, it sort of seems very Southern Gothic. But you're right. It's uh, for you, otherwise just known as life. Um, I uh, Snowden, I wanted to ask you about a particular aspect of this book that that interested me. Um, you know, in my uh, in my day job, I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, work with people with uh, disabilities. And um, oftentimes in my own writing, I try to capture the experience of, um, of people with disabilities. Uh, one of your without giving away too much plot and uh, sort of spoilers from the from American pop. One of the sort of adult, one of the Forrester um, children or adult children, uh, uh, Harold, uh, sort of uh, seems to have a developmental disability in this book. It's He's in a time and a place where maybe that's not sort of diagnosed the way that it might be today. But um, um, I, I wonder, I, I'm always very interested in how people approach writing such a character if you felt like that was challenging. Um, I also think that our cultural sensibilities around disability and even the use of the word disability is changing very quickly. And I, I, I even wonder if you would find it more challenging to write Harold today than you did um, when you wrote this book. I probably would find it more challenging. My advice went to any writer when they're writing not only a character like Harold, but whenever you're writing across identities, be it uh, race, ethnicity, sexuality, uh, you name it, uh, there are two things that are important to keep in mind. First of all, have empathy. You should always have empathy for your characters. But the thing is you should have empathy for every character, regardless of their identity or if they have a disability. The, sec the second thing is to uh, not resort to cliches or stereotypes. And again, you should never resort to cliches or stereotypes with any of your characters. So if I were being snarky, my uh, advice would be be a good writer. In other words, apply the skills you should have as a writer to all of your characters, regardless of their identities and disabilities. And so with Harold, he, he, he was a, a tricky character to create, but I felt such empathy for him. In a lot of ways, he's the heart of the book, and he's the, uh, he's the memory keeper. 
for the Foresters. And so, in some ways, he's my favorite character. But he's he holds a, uh, a bigger place in my heart than I'd say pretty much any other of the, of the Forrester family. And so, having that utter empathy for him was the biggest tool I had for creating him. And I hope I, I hope I got it right, but um, yeah, I, I would have uh, a bit more apprehension today than I did mm. five years ago. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Do you want to hear how successful authors got their start? The Queries, Quams, and Quirks podcast asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought he was well-written. I mean, I thought he was written. I thought he, he seemed honest. He, I thought he was empathically written. I never felt like we were being set up as readers to laugh at him, you know, or to find him ridiculous in some way. Um, and I think that that's the key. You know, am I sort of on the outside looking in and sort of judging this person, or is he written empathically, and am I kind of walking in his shoes? And I think, I think the book was successful in putting me in, into his shoes. Um, uh, Lynn, I wonder if you have a perspective as, as a bookseller on this issue of, um, of representation, of the representation of characters with disabilities, of, 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 of authors sort of writing across identities, of, you know, of, of just sort of in a concrete sense in terms of, you know, what, what is on the tables in your store? If I walk into Square Books today, you know, what would I find on the table and would it be different? from what I found five or 10 years ago? Oh, um, so, you know, there is so much more diversity now in publishing. And um, I, I have to be honest, I was actually looking back at our events over, you know, many, many years ago. And, um, you know, back in the, the late 80s and the early 90s um it was most of the authors that came to the store were white not all but most and um and probably and there were some women writers um and of course in mississippi you know we have ella douglas and eudora wealthy i mean and margaret walker alexander and um, so, you know, we, we have some great women writers that we recognize as well, who are very important. And, um, but for our events, you know, there, there was different, definitely there was predominantly white male. And I think, um, and that wasn't just, you know, square books going out and saying, oh, we're only going to have white males. I mean, that was kind of the publishing industry at the time. You know, if you go back and look what was published in the early 90s, you, you'll see that predominance. And, um, you know, so, and there was really quite an active movement um, pushing for diversity in publishing 
gosh, I don't know. It began like 10 years ago. And, um, and I think that you could, if you had a time capsule and you walked around the star store square books today, um, and then went back 10, 15, 20 years ago, you would definitely see a different sort of makeup. Mm -hmm. Um, also, um, like, uh, works in translation have become a lot more available. You know, there's much more that's been translated into English and then published in the United States. I mean, that was always a barrier that uh, so many, each country has its own really publishing system and there are all these like little worlds and they don't overlap very much. But we have a really very robust uh, literature and translation section now. And um, so that adds to that. So it's, it's um, you know, it's culture, race, ethnicity, ethnicity, and, you know, it's gotten to be a lot more global too. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think that's absolutely true. Um, word to the audience, just briefly before we go on, we are here for one reason, and that is to support independent book selling. And this week, that means Square Books. Uh, hop online. Uh, do not go to a big box store. Do not go to that big online retailer. Head to Square Books website. We're putting the link in the chat. Pick up a copy of American Pop. Uh, pick up a couple of other things. Uh, support independent book selling. This is a message to people who are with us now, as well as people who are with us in future time. And, um, and while we're talking retail, uh, I want to sort of talk to the two of you a little bit about kind of the public, the, the industry aspect. Again, as I mentioned earlier, many of the people who watch this are writers or, who, or, or hope to be published writers. And it's often a unique opportunity to have not only a published author, but also an experienced bookseller. Uh, Snowden, I'm going to go to you first. I know that you are in the process of hurling yourself yet again into the teeth of the publishing industry uh, with a third novel. Uh, so, so first, let me just give you the opportunity. I'd, I'd love to hear anything you would like to tell us about that novel, um, including a tentative title and any elevator pitch you might have. Sure. Uh, this novel is a bit of a departure for me. It's a literary Southern Gothic crime novel about a black female private investigator and her white male partner as they investigate a high profile murder case in 1980s Mississippi. Wow. And, yeah. So I was inspired a lot by uh, stories from growing up. My father was the district attorney in my hometown. And so he faced a, uh, he dealt with a lot of uh, serious cases. Uh, there was even one time when um, one of the defendants that he was uh, prosecuting escaped from jail and uh, threatened to kill my dad's entire family. So I like to joke that uh, I survived my first death threat when I was two years old. <laughs> Maybe his first death threat, you know, and <laughs> he also tells me this story. Um, and so the, the book is set in my hometown of Moretti, Mississippi, and the the working title I have for it right now is Queen City, which is what Moretti is known as, uh, because years and years ago it was the number two city in the state. But in digging into research about what it was like in the 1980s, a lot of it felt like the Wild West. Uh, there was this one story my dad told me. It was his first day on the job as DA. And so 
he's a 20 something and he, uh, it's lunchtime. And so he walks outside and he finds this hole in the wall burger, uh, joint walks in, orders a burger. Uh, and the, the clientele there are kind of rough looking folks. And so the burger is kind of like, they come in. Finally, this older man walks out of the kitchen and says, uh, hey, are you the, uh, the new DA? He says, uh, yes, sir, I am. He says, step back in here with me. So he takes him back in the kitchen and he says, uh, you're welcome to eat here anytime you want, but you're gonna have to eat here back in the kitchen. And when you come in this place, you come in the back door. And my dad was like, well, why? And he said, you look out there, you see those low lights out there? Within a year, if you're as good as you say you are, you're gonna put half of them behind bars. <laughs> Who you are, one of them is gonna put a knife in your gut and son, not something I can abide. <laughs> oh my God. That's that's and uh, so his stories are very inspirational for this book that I'm working on. And just that sort of uh, that Wild West feel. I've always been enamored with both crime fiction and Westerns. And so Elmer Leonard is, has always been a hero of mine. And if you know his career arc, he started writing Westerns and then moved into crime novels. And I think even with the crime novels, there was still the influence of Westerns, the archetypes of the, uh, the, the sheriff and the, the gunslingers and things like that. And so with this book, I'm trying to wed those two things. And so it's really been a fun process. Um, it's been a joy digging into the history of my hometown. And so I recently, just a few days ago, I had uh, an editorial meeting with, uh, with my editor and I'm, really excited to get started on the rewrites fantastic wow and the in the working title again is queen city queen city with that might not stick we're still to batting around a few other choices titles are hard i'm excited snowden hurry up okay <laughs> i mean it sounds unbelievable i i mean i one thing that strikes me about it, you know i i wanted to ask you speaking of uh career arc you know you're talking about elmore leonard's career arc i want to ask you about yours um uh, uh, I think Play Pretty Blues was was, was with a smaller press. Uh, uh, American Pop, I think, was under uh, um, one of the was a big five book. I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now uh, it sounds like you're crossing genres. Um, uh, I, I don't quite know how to formulate this question, um, other than just sort of um, asking whether there's sort of a strategy that you're following with regard to your engagement with the publishing industry, you know, as distinct from sort of your writing, the artistic aspect of your writing, do you think about genre? Do you think about uh, who's publishing? Uh, you know, uh, or, or are you just sort of creating what you want to create and kind of letting the chips fall where they will? I like genre malleability, uh, even with American pop. There are elements of it that are a war novel, that are, that are a romance novel, that are just classic historical novels. So I've never considered myself beholden to a single genre. Although I will say that this latest one is very much in the crime genre mold, I would, although literary crime novel. And with it, I'm really trying to challenge myself to create a propulsive plot. And that's been really fun. And but I would never want to be locked down to a single genre. And I don't, I don't know many people, many writers who would. Um, why wouldn't you want to try your hand at everything? 
And so it's really been fun. And I'm so honored to be back with my same publisher from American Pop and my same editor, the wonderful Jessica Williams. She's been so supportive and has had so much faith in me since she took me on with American Pop. And it's just a pleasure being back with her. And uh, I just trust her with this book and uh, to know when to, to push me to do more with it and to know when I'm on the right track. And so having that kind of champion, also my, my agent, Eve Adderman, has been wonderful as well. Every book, every writer needs their champions. And so I've been very fortunate to have two and uh, I'm just so grateful. Fantastic. Uh, a couple of audience questions coming in. Uh, Lynn, I'm gonna bring the first one to you. Uh, and it is re in regard to the, actually I don't have the name of it, but a uh, the Mississippi Literary Festival that is a, that your store is involved with or that is affiliated with your store, or uh, if, you, if you can speak to that. Well, so there is the Oxford Conference for the Book which is in, uh, it is March 29th through 31st, I think offhand, but the website is Oxford Conference for the Book. And um, that is something that we partner with and co-sponsor along with the um, Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. And um, it's a free conference, which is lovely. And it really is a non-academic conference. It is dedicated to readers. So um, I, I highly recommend that. But they may be talking about the Mississippi Literary Festival, which is in August in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, that is uh, a one-day book festival and, and it's at the Capitol and it's always really sort of extraordinary. It's one of those where four different panels and you are and decide who you want to hear speak. So there are always some wonderful um, speakers for that. Um, and of course, you know, and, and we have events. Um, I will say that you know, Mississippi has so many writers, um, so and a very rich literary tradition, and and we like to celebrate that. Well, I think that that actually ties into this next audience question, which is a follow up on our earlier conversation about Southern literature, and the question is: Are do are, for either one of you, um, are there any favorite Southern writers that you would like to mention or um, uh, or, or or give some love to? Lynn, do you mind if I take this? I can't. Please, please, Snowden. Prepare for the bit. See this? <laughs> Barry Hanna, airship. Oh, there oh, we go. There we go. That is so cool. I want one of those. Right? Yeah. That's a sartorial commitment to the bit right there. You're totally <laughs> committed. And I think what the audience doesn't know, Snowden, is you're up in Maine. So, I mean, you are just like, you're representing. Yeah. yeah I represent. <laughs> so, Barry so, Hanna, yeah. Um, when I went to, uh, I came to Oxford, Mississippi in, in the 80s, and um, I'd never really spent time in North Mississippi. And, and um, you know, I will admit I was prejudiced. I had kind of, you know, my idea of this wasteland, you know, with a bunch of pine trees all over it. And um, 
but then, and I was in college and I read airships. And then I realized that Barry Hanna was at the University of Mississippi and lived in Oxford. And I was like, this place is going to be, it's got to be a wonderful place if this writer uh, is there. Because that is one of my favorite books ever. And um, uh, Barry Hanna, sadly, is no longer with us. Um, uh, but he kind of, he helped nurture a lot of uh, writers following him and the, um, helped really help create the MFA program at the University of Mississippi. And uh, so re beyond his own work, he's left a real legacy. And I'm sure he's influenced Snowden as well, so. Absolutely. He was actually born in my hometown. He didn't grow up there, but he was born, I think, in some hospital there. So I always took inspiration and uh, thinking like, well, that guy Hannah could do it. Maybe I could. <laughs> Snowden, um, as long as we're sort of talking books and talking authors we love and talking commercial, um, uh, if there are any books that you're reading right now that you'd like to recommend to the audience, we'd love to hear about them. And, uh, and to the audience, I want to remind you that um, as Snowden mentions uh, books or authors he's, uh, he's loving, we're going to be posting links uh, for you to pick up a copy at one place and one place only, and that is Square Books. Uh, so click the links and pick up a copy from Square Books. Uh, Snowden, what are you reading? I've been reading homework for the, the book I'm writing. So it's a crime novel and a PI novel. Some recent favorites, uh, Sam Lipsight, who was a professor of mine in grad school, he recently came out with, I believe the title was No One Is Left To Come Looking For You. Mm -hmm. which I will call a PI novel, even though it's more of an amateur sleuth novel about a musician in 1990s New York. And I, I kind of fell in love with it because everybody who lives in New York, they kind of romanticized the era of New York right before they got there. And so his book takes place in the era right before I got there. And uh, it's, it's a P.I. novel in the same way that The Big Lebowski is a P.I. movie. It's, uh, it's a guy who's kind of thrust in to be in a P.I. So I, I found that uh, interesting. And he, it has his, uh, his classic humor. Another book is S.A.A. Uh, Cosby's Razor Blade Tears, mm -hmm. which has a, a similar format, uh, a partnership at the heart of it that's similar to at the, book I'm, uh, the book I'm writing. And... I really like his style in that you could tell he grew up like me in the 80s, watching a lot of 80s action movies. And so in the best way. And so he lets that inspire him. And uh, I guess one last one will be CJ Hauser's The Crane Wife. I had the privilege of doing a talk with her at Square Books uh, this past summer. And hers is nonfiction. And uh, it's just a wonderful book. And she's, she's an old friend. We were in a writing group together in New York before either of us were published. And so I'm so uh, proud to see her succeed. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and Razor Blade Tears is an unbelievable novel. And, um, and, and speaking of movies, I have to say, some of your name checks on, um, on 90s films, I think, are dead on. I think when you mentioned um, Pulp Fiction as sort of a... Um, an influence on um, on American pop. I was like, oh yeah, that's actually that, that actually really really works. Uh, that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lynn, uh, any books you'd like to recommend? Authors you want to put out there that you're excited about right now? 
Well, sure. But first I want to comment on Snowden's reading, which is, you know, I mean, that this is what makes a really good writer is being a really good and voracious reader, you know, to, to go from, to, from, um, you know, Homer to, to Cosby is pretty um, amazing. And, uh, that's really evident in American pop too, that I, I learned a lot of things. It's such a, a deep and wide book and uh, has so many uh, stories in it that uh, some of them, you know, we found, I found out are true. Um, uh, but as far as reading, so one thing about being a bookseller is that we are always reading ahead. So, I am reading books that are coming out in May or June or, you know, even on into the fall. And sometimes it's a little bit, you have to pull back to um, get back to what's, what's in the store now. Um, but I'm not going to, because I want to talk about um, some uh, Oxford writers Um we're so fortunate and, you know, and Snowden among them that we've had this great community of, of Oxford writers. And I think what happens is writers uh, are attracted to each other. And as, uh, as there are more writers in town and become, it gets more of a literary reputation and more people come and, you know, it's nice to be able to go to happy hour and, and be able to talk about books with people and what they're working on. Um, but there are two really good writers who have books coming out in April. And uh, one is Michael Ferris Smith, and he has a book called Salvage This World. And uh, talk about noir, it is a, um, it is uh, what they uh, briefly referred to, it was like very fashionable, talk about grit lit. Um, but it is kind of a dark, um, a, a dark world. It's set in Mississippi after um, climate change has progressed, and the there are just hurricanes after hurricanes after hurricanes, and um, so uh, that is very. Um, it's very dark and atmospheric and uh, it's sort of a sequel to his book that he did called River some years ago. Um, and that's coming out in April and we'll be, of course, be having an event for that. And then, you know, the week before his book come out, comes out, Lee Darkey, who wrote a novel called Last uh, Taxi Driver, last um, has a book called Stalking Shakespeare where he goes way deep down this rabbit hole about, you know, who was Shakespeare and what did he look like and um, addresses all the, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to call it conspiracy theorists, but all the, the, the theories that people have about that. And uh, he travels um, to England to, to try to track this down. And so it's a combination memoir and uh, narrative about the history of Shakespeare, which is pretty interesting. Oh my God, that sounds fantastic. All right, well, I mean, good job, the two of you, for those book recs. Those all sound, uh, those all sound unbelievable. 
And a reminder to the audience to uh, use the links that have been popping up in the chat, go to Square Books Online and pick up um, any or all of those books, as well as, thank you, yes, Professional Bookseller Move, uh, <laughs> as well as uh, as well as American Pop by Snowden Wright. Um, it's been such a complete pleasure uh, speaking to the two of you. This time has flown by and it's, it's, it's just been completely uh, delightful. Um, Snowden, cannot wait for your third novel, uh, tentatively titled Queen City, uh, might change, but we very much look forward to that coming out. Um, Lynn, complete pleasure to speak with you. And um, I hope to make it to Oxford, Mississippi one of these days and to visit Square Books because um, it sounds like a, a, a unique literary destination. So thank you so much for being here with us. Um, to the audience, uh, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you for supporting Authors Love Bookstores with a Mighty Blaze. Uh, if you like the show, please subscribe online, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, join us two weeks from today uh, for our 126th episode with writer Alex Jennings at Tubby and Coo's Mid-City Bookshop. Uh, and until then, uh, support independent book selling, be well, and keep reading. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for A Mighty Blaze podcast. My adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath trilogy are available now if you want to check them out. Tune in next time for a bonus 13th episode featuring none other than Emily Giffen. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>